Hi, and welcome to September's episode of The Round Table. I'm Max Taylor, Deputy Intelligence Manager here at Intelligence Fusion. I'm Alex Smith, Regional Analyst. And I'm Matt Pratton, uh, the Senior Regional Analyst for Europe. And this episode's title is Decisive Battle in the Modern Era. So we've uh, we've taken a bit of a shift away from some of the more, uh, I guess you could say, more focused stuff we've done in the past in these. And, and this time we're going for a slightly more historical approach, I guess. You can, that decisive battle is a, it's a question that uh, any military history student will be quite familiar with. So... With the prospect of con- conventional battle once again on the table in the modern era, we have decided this week to weigh in on some of the discussion around this. In doing so, in this pro- episode, we're going to discuss modern and historical examples of decisive battle, and also talk about whether the term decisive is even a helpful term in understanding modern conflict, particularly in the context of Ukraine and the ongoing offensive in the Kherson region. Before we start, I just want to provide it's a really basic, very simple definition of what decisive battle actually is, and we'll talk about this a bit more in detail. Uh, in just a moment but just to get the ball rolling decisive battle is generally understood to be a battle which decides the outcome of a war whether this be in the form of avoiding total strategic defeat or being a battle that changed the course of a war through victory so some historical examples off the top of my head could include um hastings or the battle of waterloo both of which had pretty pretty massive consequences so i'll bring in the other two now so first before we start actually i'm interested if you guys had to sum up decisive battle in one or two sentences how would you do it yourselves in just as as succinct as you can? I'd say a military engagement that leads to the conclusion of an armed conflict. Okay, what about you, Matt? Yeah, similar vein. I would go. I would go more along the, along the lines of it has significant uh, significant effect uh, effects uh, after it's after it's concluded, and also it would be also important to differentiate but differentiate between tactical and strategic. Uh, strategic levels when you're looking at the concept of uh, of decisive battle, and also add in it's a a, a situation where uh, the enemy gets a vote. It's uh, it's a, it's a case where there's been you know there's been a decisive a decisive battle where it's the point where it's it's both sides agree that one of them won. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. There's there's a you've got to differentiate between winning a battle decisively and the battle itself being decisive. Yeah. yeah, I think the other side admitting that they've lost is generally quite a quite an important part. I think it's quite an interesting thing you brought up, Matt, there. You've got kind of layers to your definition as well with the strategic and the tactical thing, and we'll come into that later. So that brings us on to the first bit then. So with those definitions in mind, you'd think that, okay, so pretty much all wars have a decisive battle of some sort, and it, true to be said, especially historically, there have been cases. So question is then why wouldn't the battle be decisive so you know perhaps we can touch on some uh, historical examples here as well so why if a battle won is a battle won why would that not be a decisive victory and also can you guys maybe flesh out on some of the arguments opposed to the concept of decisive battle well i think like I said it could be, you could win a battle and be decisively it could be a, you know you could take the field if you like you could achieve your objectives but that doesn't necessarily translate into a um uh, a more strategic effect on the overall course of conflict um it just adds to the cumulative effect that could one day result in victory i think really one of the problems with decisive battles is you're probably not going to know they're decisive um at the time mm. it's it's for future historians to to decide where you know and argue over what the decisive turning point was um as to why we might not think they're possible today 
Um, I think it's because we've had what, 30 years of peacekeeping, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies. We've seen an expansion of the battlefield, not just in terms of the battlefield area, you know, with much larger fronts than we'd have seen in, in, in even modern sort of Napoleonic times, but an expansion of the battle space into different domains, you know, so there's sea, air, land, there's now cyber, there's what some people call liminal or grey zone warfare, although you mm. know, that's, that's a bit debatable. And I think when you, say, take the counterinsurgency examples from the last two decades, you're fighting a very amorphous, um, asymmetric enemy. They're never going to line up on a battlefield for you to duke it out and decide who's boss, are they? Yeah. So I think we've just because it's been so long since we saw a um, sort of a major conflict resolved by a single battle or campaign that we kind of associate that more to history than the modern era. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it is. Um, it's often defined to historical debate, but then I do think you know, as you brought up there, in the, it is something worth discussing in the modern era at least. One thing I've noticed as one of the major sort of arguments against whether decisive battle is even a thing, is even a theme worth discussing, other than what you just said there, Alex, is the concept of attrition as opposed to mm-hmm. one single confrontation. So um, I found an interesting quote from uh, Cathay Nolan, and it's from his uh, pretty, uh, pretty sturdy book. There's a lot of it, but it's, a, it's definitely worth a read. And the quote is, whether or not we agree that some wars are necessary and just, we should just look straight at the grim reality that victory was most often achieved in the biggest and most important wars by attrition and mass slaughter, not by soldierly heroics and the genius of command. So essentially what he's saying here is that uh, it's one single event or one single moment of genius by a commander that doesn't win wars. What wins wars is the sequence of events that led up to that, the attrition, the gradual grinding down of each other's defences. And Cathay Nolan, again, another quote from here is, modern wars are not won by grinding, not by genius, but by strategic depth and resolve, is always, which is always more important than any commander. So again, he sort of reinforces his point here, saying that the individual commander can be great, can be a genius, but then at the end of the day, a genius commander in a bad strategic situation is still not enough to win decisive victory. So I guess there is issues with that. There is issues with this idea that all battles are won by, all wars are won by attrition. Because in some cases, especially in the modern era, I think it's much more complicated. Well, know. it can be attrition on one side, I mean. Yeah, that's that too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. There was yeah. a lot of attrition of the yeah. Iraqi forces in 2003. That's but a good point, not, yeah. not a lot of the Americans. No, right? it is a very good point. Is attrition. Um, and, and if you look, and to use... To, uh, to to back up Alex on that one with Operation Iraqi Freedom in two thousand in two thousand three that was a you know a, a heavy attrition of Iraqi forces but the Americans just didn't you know line up and and just throw everything at it they they uh, they planned out uh, intricately on how to, on on what towns to take what towns to bypass mm. there's a good example of of how that plan came about in the uh, it's a it's a uh, it's a fiction. It's a fictional series uh, called uh, Ge- called Generation Kill, and it's about the Marines when they yeah, go I've in. Seen that. Yeah, yeah and it, there's a there's a as an example, there's a particular scene where there's like yeah, there's a huge firefight going on, and uh, General Mattis turns up and he's he's chastising a commander who wants to uh, who wants to take a town, and the and Mattis is turning around saying no, the plan isn't to take this town. The plan is to punch right through it to go to our actual objective. Mm. So you've got in that instance there a, an example of and in fact the, the wider uh, battle plan 
for uh, for taking uh, Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom was to you know, not just take every place, but take the the places that would have a strategic would have an effect in you know ending the fight uh, very quickly, and go a little go a little further back to the to I think what would even be a better example would be uh, would be the Gulf War of ninety one. Where Saddam was, you know, Saddam after he invaded Kuwait, he was saying when the when the UN amassed all its forces, he was saying it was going to be the the mother of all battles, and essentially mm-hmm. there rather than just attrition, it was actually, uh, you know, intricate planning and deception with a, a deception a deception plan of a feigned um, uh, amphibious assault. Uh, but then the actual assault came from what uh, Schwarzkopf ha- uh, called the Hail Mary of going into mm. into Iraq with a whole lot of combined arms warfare, a com- uh, combined arms, and that kind of concept goes all the way back to even the First World War, where yeah. I mean, uh, I'd say with Monash with, developed that concept with the Gulf, the the Turkey shoot at the end was pretty decisive. I'd say, oh yeah, the, the highway, yeah, and, and yeah, that adds to it, it as well. The may, highway, maybe of I've maybe I've mis- <coughs> misconstrued a little bit from from the quotes you have, but it seems to me like the guys sort of bemoaning. Sort of, oh, we don't have the genius great man of history commander. We don't have Napoleon that can snatch defeat, snatch, snatch defeat, snatch uh, victory from the jaws of defeat or anything. And I'm like, so no, you're referring okay, to Catherine Nolan's book, yeah. yeah so yeah. the the general book is is part about that, but the general book is more just about the concept. It's not about the commanders itself. Right. It's more uh, these two quotes do highlight the commander, but it's more about the concept of decisive battle. And he essentially throughout his book, he looks at examples that have often been understood as decisive and then essentially explains why he feels that they weren't. And some yeah. of the arguments are very convincing, some mm-hmm. some less so, but good uh, book nonetheless. I dare say there's I dare say for uh, for Nolan to, uh, for you know to justify that argument would point to uh the Second World War or I i.e. what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War when it came to the when it came to the Russian uh, Russians fighting the Germans. Uh, the the Russians in that case they just threw wave after wave of of men against against the Germans and eventually you know that combined with uh, with the brutal Russian winter uh, def- uh, defeated the German army. Now you could call that a de- you know a decisive victory through through attrition, but you look at the effects that it had on on Russia for years to come on the you know just 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 with the the huge amount of casualties. Russia hasn't been has not been the same since in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of population, and if you were to fast forward today, they kind of take that similar uh, as we've sort of mentioned on other uh, other briefings, they've taken that similar concept just with upgraded weaponry, and it's not working very well. Yeah, I think arguably you could say Eastern Front and Second World Wars almost a lack of decisive battle I mean some would point towards Stalingrad just for the attrition but again even after Stalingrad there was Kursk as well but even after both Stalingrad and Kursk there was still a lot of fighting afterwards which took place and you could also argue they were on the way down already when these battles were fought the fact is that these things you know these what we later decide as I said historians decide could you know could argue were decisive battles take place in a much broader context mm. you know there's battles leading up to them and there's mopping up operations afterwards and and again this is because it's the modern era with bigger battlefields bigger battle spaces um it's not like you know you defeat the enemy in the field and then march on their capital and crown yourself emperor or anything. exactly yeah. and there's also i think uh, a concept i think with modern warfare that's not really attributed to in Sort of, uh, you know, but prior to I think World War Two, where you saw maneuver warfare really come to come to the forefront, is a uh, concept of decisive effects. 
is, you know, for and, and this is where I suppose it comes to play in, in sort of a counterinsurgency kind of uh, kind of areas. But uh, a good example to point to when in terms of decisive battle or decisive effects is uh, with regards to uh, Vietnam, the Australian SASR. They had, you know, their sort of tactics. They you know, they had those small patrols, but those small patrols had a huge effect on the wider. Uh, North Vietnamese Army in Viet Cong to the point where, because of all the various small, uh, you know, uh, small battles which became a campaign, uh, uh, campaign that had an effect of being of Australian soldiers being regarded as uh, Ma Rung or Phantoms of the Jungle, and you could go one step further with regards to uh, what's coming to light now with regards to the Americans' activities in Vietnam with the uh, the revelations. It's, uh, I know Jocko Willink has been, um, has been very good at uh, detailing this, but the uh, uh, very well, at the, up until recently it's been rather classified, but Mac, uh, uh, MACV SOG, their operations into uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos and even Thailand uh, would have some decisive effects. So there's that in, in, that, in that regard, you've got the, you know, the, the more so did something Sorry, that would... Sorry, we're talking Vietnam, so decisive in them losing? Yeah, I was just going to say, can, <laughs> yeah. can a battle and, be decisive and he, if and, you lost? And they had, yeah, well, and yeah, and that, it was it well, strategically... Yes. Became, you, could, you could lose decisive. Yeah, st- yeah. Strategically, it was it was a loss, but there was a lot of a lot of tactical victories and uh, decisive, decisive uh, uh, victories at the tactical level. And uh, that was, you know, those kind of examples, so, that sort of, sort of lends to, okay, there can, there's a difference between decisive battles at the tactical level and decisive battles at the strategic. If you, if you think about it, yeah, think, I've never really considered, uh, not really given much thought to Vietnam in this context, but, you know, the Americans famously, long, you know, they won every every battle, they won every major engagement. Um, so one thing I say about and yet that, though, they lost the war. So you could say, well, clearly battles well, can't be decided. The relationship between, the relationship between <laughs> tactics and strategy needs to be a two-way street. So yeah. a tactical victory without any strategic gain, is it really a victory? I think it depends on how you define victory here. I, and I, no, I, I yes, I agree. Yeah. But if you win every major engagement, even let's face it, Tet was a massive turning point in Vietnam yeah. War. And yet it was an utter disaster for the Viet Cong. You know, the Viet Cong were virtually wiped out yeah. during the Tet Offensive. But it shifted the narrative within America that led to the, you know, the yeah. growth and the anti-war movement. So, you know, if we're talking about battle as a major force-on-force engagement, if you win every single one of them, yeah, and lose the war, then yeah, maybe battles aren't decisive. You know, well, can't exactly. Be. Yeah. So enough history. I don't want to linger too long <laughs> on history, as uh, you know, otherwise we may as well become a history company. But uh, so. Matt brought us on nicely earlier, actually talking about Desert Storm in Iraq. And so our next section is about uh, examples of decisive battles in the modern era. And Alex actually touched on it briefly at the end there, that in modern battles, I think there's this other, there's this new layer of complication that perhaps we don't see as much in history. And that's the political side of it and changing the political narrative. And you mentioned Tet Offensive, like, yes, militarily and tactically, I guess you could say it wasn't actually that big a victory for the, uh, for the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese forces. However, the political shift it had caused strategic by strategic effect. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the political side of it, and this is a new layer, and as war and politics become arguably much, much closer than ever nowadays and much more closer to the, uh, to the individual people back home as well, you could say this is more pronounced. So, uh, Matt, you, you mentioned Iraq as, a, as an example as well, and I thought, whilst you're talking, actually, one thing that came to mind was, do you reckon before it started, and this is something I probably should have researched, 
both sides were looking for something decisive. So you mentioned um, the, Iraq, the quote from Saddam Hussein. It sounds like the Iraqi forces were looking for a decisive engagement. Whereas I wonder, were the Americans, cause, or were the Americans thinking this is going to be more attritional? And were they themselves then surprised when they basically did have these decisive engagements and the Iraqi army collapsed? Was that their purpose all along? Or do we think this was sort of something they realised in hindsight that it was decisive? Was this the goal or was it just a... Uh, I I think if uh, you just remind, I just remembered I, uh, something. It was, I dare say, it was the plan all along yeah. to not have some massive attritional engagement. Was to end the was to use maneuver uh, to you know to end the fight to end the fight quickly. I mean, it was uh, a speech by it was in in fact it was I think it came from uh, President uh, President George Bush. Uh, his his quote of this will not be another Vietnam. This will not be. A long drawn out war. Mm. So the the plan for the Americans, the plan was all along to not have a decisive engagement. It was get Saddam out of there as quick as po- uh, get Saddam out of Kuwait as quick as possible. And well, it worked to a T. They you know had the Iraqis thinking they were going to do an, amphi- an, an amphibious assault, but then all of a sudden came the the Hail Mary, which was a you know a massive combined arms attack. There was a, a an air campaign. And then a very quick, uh, very quick ground campaign uh, to you know kick uh, kick the Iraqis out of Kuwait. But from the, the from the outset, it wasn't to ha- it wasn't you know to have sort of a you know you know not have a, a, a massive you know army on ar- army on army battle uh, like it's not the sort of mother of all battles that Saddam was after. And I suppose and with uh, and and with the Iraq War, you know, two thousand three, the again you got. Tactical victory, but a strategic, uh, strategic failure. I mean, they they went in just just like the Gulf War. They went in there and obliterated the Iraq uh, the Iraqi forces uh, in in no in no time at all. Um, however, when it came to holding the terrain, uh, be it you know physical or or even you know the, the non physical aspect, the you know uh, non physical aspects of terrain, human terrain specifically. That was a complete and total strategic failure uh, by, you know, i.e. when you don't have many troops on the ground to maintain law and order and then you turn around and sack the Iraqi military and police force, well, that just creates an insurgency yeah, yeah, yeah. that you're yeah, yeah, ill-equipped. But, that, but that's outside the purview of the yeah. decisive battle, isn't it? So. Although you could, although it could be in a way... Uh, decisive, whereas you've got some, you've 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 taken the you've taken the objective, you've taken the terrain, but in order to make that a decisive battle and uh, you know, have a decisive victory, is the ability to hold said terrain. And what happened well, after but that again, was that depends on the objective, doesn't yeah. it? If your objective is to hold the terrain, yes, maybe it's not. Yeah, on, on that one, that's still that's still murk, still i suppose a bit murky mm. with regards to when it comes to uh modern i suppose modern warfare is does decisive battle uh the concept still exist which it's hard to determine because well if there's one thing that's been true about the about warfare over the last 20 years you look at iraq and afghanistan as well as that the 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 objectives changed way too uh, way too often yeah, and and that comes and rather than in a, in regards to I suppose warfare and military strategy and tactics that comes down to sort of more into the field of politics when it comes to the concept of civilian control over the military, which that's going off on a tangent and mm. a half. <laughs> so bring know. us back, Max. Yeah, so, <laughs> Take yeah. the hint, Max. So um, real So a few other examples then, moving away from Iraq, and one which 
it's definitely not focused on anywhere near as much. It's something that we came across whilst we we're doing our research. We've spoken about it between ourselves before this, and that's um, the Battle of Shusha in the Nagorno-Karabakh War. And there was a really good podcast put together actually about this from the Modern War Institute at West Point, and they essentially talked about as if uh, the Battle of Shusha and suggested that this was in fact the decisive battle of the conflict. And uh, I found this really interesting as this was the whole conflict as a whole, I think, was a surprise for a lot of observers in that it was a return back to this conventional war that, as you mentioned earlier, Alex, we just simply haven't seen much. And as with it being between Azerbaijan and Armenia, I think it didn't get as much tension as mm. perhaps Russia and Ukraine does. But uh, it was still, it was a, a suggestion that we are returning back to this decisive conflict, which I think many people felt simply isn't part of this era. So to see almost a set piece uh, decisive battle, as it said, it's, say, as, it, as said by the Modern War Institute and others, was quite interesting in the Battle of Shusha. And I thought that was a particularly notable, notable example in modern era and quite recent modern era as well. Yeah, I think it was John Spencer at, um, who runs the the Urban Warfare mm. program um, that that argued quite convincingly that the the Battle of Shusha was decisive because when it was seized. Um, so Shusha sits on quite an important lines of communications. It dominates. It's an elevated. It's an elevated town. It's got good fields of fire. Um, it's just a few miles away from the regional capital. Um, so it's actually strategically important. With you know, sits. It's very strategically important position. It occupies within the landscape. Um, so when it was taken holding on to the you know the surrounding area became untenable and it, it was decisive um that that was basically the ball game um i think also so so i i'd agree that's decisive what you need to say what we need to caveat it with though is nagorno-karabakh was quite a, a comparatively limited uh war in a in a comparative you know a, a geographically limited area um, for for limited, pretty clearly defined limited aims. Um, so yeah, decisive battle can does exist. I, I certainly think that's one of them. But it's it's a pretty rare beast if you look at um, if you look at modern history. I think you're right to point out the geographical limitations as well. In that, I think that almost allows something to be decisive. In that it mm. almost it, it puts in almost unnatural restrictions to the conflict where both sides are unwilling to use certain weapons or even strategies and as a result this return to set peace military versus military engagements that we're not so used to seeing was almost guaranteed as a result it was a geographical area it's fairly remote you know there is a lot of um, settlements and towns and cities there but a lot of the fighting took place away from them as well as within them as well it was a bit of a mix and it was a geographical limited area so it almost feels like yes set peace engagements were much more likely to happen than, let's say, in a total conflict between mm. Europe and Russia, for example, or something along those lines. Yeah, if, if your limited objective is to seize this piece of territory and yeah. you fight a battle exactly. and you win, you've got the territory, great, that was a decisive battle. But that's a very rare in a conflict now. I mean, mm. if we're talking like, you look at the Ukrainian front, was it the the Kherson front? It's about 800 kilometres long. You know, it's it's way too, way too broad a battlefield to... to think that oh if we just seize this one piece of territory this town this this communications junction or, or whatever it's going to be conclusive for that entire front let alone the war it's just it's no no single objective can really be that important in such a broad front 
Yeah, m- most well for 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 Curson at the moment, the the significance of it is more so the the eastern the eastern regions of it because the eastern part of that uh, of that sort of province in Ukraine is what connects uh, Ukraine uh, the Donbass region to uh, to the Crimean Peninsula. So, where the Russians have taken at the moment, they've been able to push quite, uh, you know, take take most of the re- uh, take most of the region, including the capital city, up to the up to the uh, uh, Dnieper River. What will sort of be, you know, what will sort of make cur- uh, you know, the current curse on offensive uh, dis- have a decisive effect, I suppose, is if the Ukrainians all, uh, are able to put take the place and threaten that link between Crimea and the Donbass region or if the Russians are successful in stopping the Ukrainians uh, Ukrainians from doing that because the one of the the major advantages for Russian uh, for Russia taking at least the eastern part of Ukraine is to uh, have at least two uh, two avenues of avenues of uh, approach from mainland Russia into into the Crimean Peninsula, which has you know strategic importance in in you know oil and gas reserves, but also access to the the Black Sea, which is of course the gateway into the Mediterranean for Russia. So. Going back to Ukraine then and going back to the offensive and Kherson in particular, one thing, one of the big differences, I think, between the Battle of Shusha, which we mentioned earlier, and what's happening now in Kherson is the scale. So I think Ukraine arguably is more of an attritional, attritional conflict, whereas I do think with the war with the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, I think both sides were aware that this conflict was going to come to an end fairly quickly and maybe it lasted longer than they thought. And with that in mind, I think the political and symbolic element of victory is actually more important because, for example, seizing Shusha, let's say this conflict went on for a long period of time, went on for years, perhaps the Armenians could have retaken it themselves at some point or perhaps it wouldn't have had this strategic, decisive impact that it ended up having. However, with it being a shorter conflict, the the seizure of a major population centre in a relatively small area, therefore, has quite a big impact, especially when both sides then approach the negotiation table afterwards, when one side has has captured all this ground and has the ability to capture more, that has a massive impact, whereas a conflict that's more prolonged, these victories may actually end up being comparatively quite small compared to the attritional side of a conflict that can go on for years which some seem to think that ukraine could go on for a very very long time as well so there's two very big differences there so as a result i think what a decisive battle would look like in armenia in the form and not going back karabakh in the form of shusha is very different to what we might see in ukraine and alex you mentioned it yourself the size of the curse on front alone means a decisive victory would have to be massive and you know the ukrainians themselves have said that progress is going to be slow yeah whether we're successful or not so yeah, I think it's what people need to bear in mind if we talk about like the curse on offensive and you immediately think of, you know, tanks breaking out from cover and charging across ground and, you know, taking, seizing objectives and all that. And as you say, the the Ukrainians themselves have said, no, nah, that's not going to be how it is. They've They've been attacking Russian lines of communication. Um, it's going to be a much slower, um, less less spectacular i suppose sort of offensive because the ukrainians don't have i don't know what you probably know better than me matt i don't know how many tanks they've got left but i've they're they're quite low on on armored armored maneuver there they lack they have manpower but which you know the level the level of training that they've got the the lack of material and stuff they're they're not about to encircle and destroy large Russian forces, just as the Russians 
seem to be unable to do with the Ukrainians. They also can't achieve. No, no, neither side has the the ability to exploit a breakout, um, encircle enemy forces or anything. This this is how the Russians' inability to do that is how Ukraine has been able to fight them and then just withdraw and establish another line because the Russians can't encircle and destroy significant Ukrainian forces. Hence, they're relying on on artillery. Um, well, the reliance on artillery is actually uh, Russian Russian military doctrine. They, it's uh, it's yeah they they see it as the the god the god of war. I mean, contrary to it's a like turning maneuver warfare on on its head. You know, in in sort of Western fighting, artillery is used to fix an enemy in place, while your tanks and infantry and other elements go and uh, you know d- deliver the killer blow. In Russian fighting, it's use the uh, use the uh, tanks, uh, uh, infantry, and armor to fix in place, and then the artillery in the air uh, delivers mm. delivers the killer blow. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I get they also you know they use artillery instead of air, so, you know, in a, in a way that that. NATO powers, by which basically in America, would use air power. But they also, you know, have a lot of mechanised manoeuvre and stuff, which they have lost a hell of a lot of. They're, they're bringing in... So they're bringing in sort of old Soviet kit out of mothballs. Yeah, they, 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 brought, um, they brought that stuff up from from, uh, from Crimea. Yeah. And with regards to the, I suppose the, the Ukraine, uh, what the sort of resources the Ukrainians have at the moment? Yeah, they've they've lost they've lost big time. They've lost a lot of armor, a lot of air. Mm. Uh, as far as their training goes, their their training are oh, their their. Their training's been quite. Uh, they're actually trained uh, to quite a quite a uh, good level. Mm. The 2014, um, you know, initial invasion of the Donbass and Crimea was a massive wake up mm. call for the Ukrainians, and they just reached out to anyone who was willing to train them. Yeah. But, and what's also happening at the moment? It, it's uh, one thing. It's been you know seen indications of it here and there is that there's still supplies going. You know, still aid being provided to Ukraine in the form of uh, you know, Eastern Bloc kit that's held uh, elsewhere in you know, say Czechoslovakia, Slo- mm. um, Slovenia, etc. There, tanks well, and, and not, not Czechoslovakia anymore, but yeah, yeah but there, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the Eastern Bloc equipment that's uh, still elsewhere in Europe that's being gradually pushed. Yeah, forward. I mean, the, and the, uh, they've got people also being trained in but, new weaponry as well. So, that, not to go down the, the resources could improve. They've they've lost a lot, but there's. Looks yeah, like they they've, could, they've got like could be replenished. They've got a car boot sale of yeah. old kit from all across Europe, which no one's actually that skilled at using. It's a massive logistics pain. It's you know different ammunition for stuff. All you know that that's not necessarily a great thing. I'd have said to go back to what you were saying, Max, about something like the curse on you know the the political side of it, the um, the the sort of morale aspect. I do think, like the Kherson offensive, if it's successful, would be a very necessary and big morale boost mm. to to Ukrainian defenders. Um, Russia would obviously deny it was defeated or anything, and and hopefully Russia will withdraw rather than that's a good word, withdraw yes, yeah. some. Well, just withdraw some troops rather mm. than have them destroyed, because you know you can say a uh, tactical withdrawal is better than a defeat, isn't it? Mm. You can you can at least spin that, but. I think we're heading into winter. I think Ukraine has been on the defensive for the course pretty much this entire war. And I think if they can gain something that looks like a bit of a victory, I think that'll be important in the morale of their own 
defenders. Mm. Um, it could be a blow to Russia, depending on how it plays out. Um, and I think it's probably also important on the sort of the international stage for them to be seen, to be on the offensive, to be yeah. doing something with with whatever equipment they have been given and you know that they're they're being proactive basically and that they're trying to achieve results rather than just yeah yeah. so it might not be decisive in that ends the war but it could be decisive in securing european support for that bit longer exactly yeah yeah. 10 10 years time maybe the historians will look back and be like ah the curse on offensive is where things so you know like it may not have achieved much on the ground but it had a more you know political strategic effect Mm. I think we might see uh, a, a bit of both, a, a, a case of a for Kherson, depending on how on, on if the Ukrainians are successful. We may see it become a tactical victory, uh, you know, just a decisive a decisive battle in terms of the tactical level, where the Ukrainians push forward and cut uh, and cut Donbass and, and Crimea off from each uh, off from each other before winter. That's going to you know that's going to, going to have some effects on I, Russian I ability don't to think fight. They can it's, push that far forward. I don't think we'll see that. I just don't think they've got the ability to to break through and exploit a breakthrough to that depth. Possibly. I don't think they've got the kit. I don't think they've got logistics for it. I don't think they've got the ammunition. Without yeah, it could could be, or even just threaten threaten that link. Uh, yeah. Now, assume, uh, if the Ukrainians are able to you know have it have a decisive effect, it'll it could be a case where it's a tactical victory for the Ukrainians, like you said. Mm. You know. Uh, Provides a massive uh, morale boost for uh, for Ukrainian troops just before uh, just before winter, but with winter coming, the if there's one thing if there's one thing that I've noticed as being quite a defining factor about the current Ukraine war overall is you know, Ukrainians at the tactical level are wiping the floor with uh, wiping the floor with the Russians. Strategically, however, it's the direct opposite. Russia's been wiping the floor with Ukraine and 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 wider Europe. I mean. And uh, in, in, if there's one, if there's a weakness that's that's uh, that's Russia's been able to exploit very well is its um, is its ec- economic leverage over Europe, and it's we're already seeing it with energy prices going through the roof. And uh, as of a few days a few days ago, the Nord Stream One pipeline is now completely uh, is now completely offline. Come winter, when there's there's little natural natural gas available for Europe to use. That kind of economic hardship that's that's coming, and Europe is not used has not had economic hardship for a very long time. So people have been very comfortable. That's going to have a lot of pressure in terms of you know being more appeasing to Russia, and to do that, that will require withdrawing support for Ukraine in a lot of regards. So the Ukrainians may be able to actually take Kherson or even just threaten the link between Donbass and Crimea, but that's just going to have it be a tactical level, but strategically. It could, you know, we could see uh, the onset of winter. Um, you know, only keep those gain, the, whatever gains the Ukrainians make on the ground, to just gains on the ground. It's not going to have much of a decisive effect. In fact, you may see come winter, uh, and f- and onwards, you may see support for Ukraine, which is one thing it relies on heavily. Uh, you may see that start to wane. Yeah, no, I, I agree on the sort of the geopolitical level that yes, you know, strategically. Energy is a huge. Energy is a huge weapon for Russia to use against against yeah. the West. And yes, I'm I'm counting down the days until German resolve completely dissolves and and undermines sanctions and stuff. But I disagree on your point about Ukraine. You say tactically they're doing well. It's like I think 
Ukraine's fighting a very smart fight, and I think they're fighting it well. Um, you know, they're they're doing a good job of picking their battles and and digging in where they have to and withdrawing where they have to. And you know, I think they're. I think they're doing a good job by which is evidenced by the fact they're still here. You know, the the general the general consensus amongst pretty much everyone when Russia invaded was they were gonna tear the Ukrainians to shreds and that is Yep, that's not only has that not happened, I don't think it will happen. You know, I think the when this comes to a conclusion, like you say, it's it's attritional now. I don't think Ukraine neither side um is really capable of gaining a decisive battlefield victory over the other that that would tip the balance, I don't reckon. Overall, you know, from what I can tell, Ukraine, tactically, they're 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 uh, you know, they're the ones on top. Strategically, uh it's it's looking like Russia. And you know, like and Alex, for every every example you said there with regards to what Ukraine have been up to, you you're spot on. They're they've been excellent at at fighting the Russians on the ground. Um, in in fact, the you know the, the if there was one if there was probably one major flaw that came with the battle plan for the Russians was underestimating the Ukrainian will to fight. I'm not sure they had a battle plan to be quite honest. <laughs> I'm I'm left scratching my. I've yeah. I've, I've been looking at that uh, at, at the build up. Uh, beforehand, I'm still scratching my head as to why why try and invade this way. Uh, <laughs> I think that it is up, what it is. You've got a good point. That good point. I don't matter that. I think when in the context of Ukraine, I think the, the decisive aspect of it might be perhaps outside of Ukraine itself. It might whether that be in the case of Europe somehow comes finds some way of avoiding this energy crisis and that then therefore takes away a huge amount of Russia's leverage over Europe, or perhaps Europe, America, Western powers find a way to maybe wean off countries like India that have been uh, buying a huge amount of Russian energy and Russian oil gas, uh, which is essentially bankrolled the Russian government in the time of sanctions, whether the West can find a way of either somehow convincing them to buy less, again, that would reduce Russia's leverage. I feel like these incidents, these political level incidents will probably be more decisive than battlefield engagements. But as we said, these, that doesn't mean these battlefield engagements aren't important. You know, Ukraine has managed to hold on far longer than anyone thought and far more successfully. And what we saw around Kiev, for example, when Ukrainian forces essentially managed to repel the Russian invasion, the Russian occupation of Kiev, uh, I th- you could almost say that that was decisive and that if they had lost, the war would probably well, have been over there and then. Uh, yeah, yeah. Had, had the Russians succeeded, that could well have been decisive for the exactly, war. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But Ukraine winning, i.e. Yeah. holding out, in itself was not decisive. It was yeah, prevented it prevented a decisive, a decisive win. Yeah, which yeah. suggests that okay, so maybe decisive wins are yeah. possible in the modern era. But that's speaking purely hypothetically. Obviously, we have no idea what would have happened. We're recording this additional part uh, on the thirteenth of September using information from the twelfth of September, seeming as the situation in Ukraine has now changed significantly since the first recording. So, Matt, with that in mind, could you just tell us what's changed in Ukraine since the Kherson offensive began? Okay, well. <clears throat> With the Kherson offensive, we've noticed quite a few uh, towns being recaptured by the Ukrainians, uh, date from uh, yesterday. But at the same time, uh, there seemed to be uh, seemed to be quite a, an opportunity for Ukrainian forces to recapture a lot of territory up in the north in Kharkiv Oblast, and Ukrainian forces have been 
so far very successful in pushing eastwards uh from what we can tell they've been able to get as far as far east as the Os- oskill river and in many cases not only uh, there's been you know there's been skirmishes but there's been actually cases where russian forces have actually just abandoned their positions in panic and uh leaving behind uh, a lot of a lot of very useful equipment for the U- ukrainians we're talking t80 tanks uh various bcrs and bmp APCs and IFEs, as well as artillery platforms up to and including the 2S19 Emster S. So this is all of this is some of Russia's latest military equipment, which Ukrainian forces are, of course, well trained in, and it's a similar fashion to what was occurring with Ukrainian farmers in the initial invasion back in February, where Russian tanks, which were or vehicles which were abandoned, were being picked up and towed away by Ukrainian farmers. We're seeing a, a similar situation there. So up north in Kharkiv Oblast, there's I suppose the curse on offensive, the lead up to it, and the much publicised um, rhetoric about it. Allowed a bit of a, a bit of a faint to occur, a bit of a faint to occur. Although at the same time, during these this retaking of areas in Kharkiv Oblast, the Russians have launched, from what we understand, is a missile attack on the Kharkiv thermal power plant uh, within the city. So to sort of summarise, I guess the Kherson offensive is ongoing, but the Kharkiv offensive has been bigger and has had substantially bigger territorial gains than seen in the south, right? Yeah, that's correct. I, yeah. I think they've broadly speaking. Yeah. yeah, I think the Russians expected the curse on offensive and repossession of a lot of forces. So, I mean, hands up. I'd like to say, well done to the Ukrainians for proving me completely wrong on <laughs> on they won't be able to like exploit breakthroughs or anything. They've they've totally proven me wrong there. They have rolled up a lot of territory. Um, they've retaken a lot um, in Kharkiv, albeit against quite weak i mean the russian forces are collapsing but i think russia repositioned a lot of forces to the south for Kherson, um which has been a lot more of a grind i mean they're, they're also making progress in in the Kherson theater but it's been a lot slower um it's nothing like the the huge sweeping sweeping back that we've uh, we've been seeing in um kharkiv so to tie it back to the original theme of the podcast, then, which was decisive battle, obviously I'm not going to ask you, is this decisive, as it's still ongoing and you simply can't decide whether it's, on, it's decisive until you see the results of it. However, with this in mind, do you guys still think that Ukraine has a, that decisive battle is possible in Ukraine, or do you disagree with this statement and think that, no, Ukraine's more of an attritional conflict where decisive battle, which simply isn't something we should be looking for, or isn't a way we should be trying to understand the conflict? I am... Um... I'm going to put it out there and say it's probably not decisive still, mm. um, despite the big, big gains that they've made. I th- can imagine defeats in the field like this, certainly in, in Kharkiv, which I think is probably less, um, less important to the to the Russians politically. I don't think defeat in the Russians in Kharkiv will will bring about will be decisive in ending the war. I think. Putin will change strategy, maybe try and win politically, double down on the coercive use of energy um, against the against Western Europe, and also, as you mentioned, Matt, with the uh, the attack on the electricity infrastructure, um, he's going to try and give a very nasty win to not just to to 
the Western Europeans, but also to the Ukrainians as well, and and sort of shift the shift the contest more into the political sphere and and less emphasis on the battlefield. Possibly, um, in fact, from what I can tell, with regards to it, could there be any decisive factors here? Tactically, there could be it. It could be a deci- It could be decisive for for both sides, depending on on how things pan out. Uh, one thing I've been noticed now that Ukrainians have been able to push forward very quickly. Will they be able to hold that territory? I think that's where we'll see if it's going to be decisive for the uh, for the Ukrainians. Although, uh, pardon the I suppose a sort of cynical reference here, but uh, to sort of uh, uh, use um, the cynical version of Murphy's laws of unarmed, uh, Murphy's laws of warfare. If your attack is going well, you're walking into an ambush, and things in Kharkiv have gone very well for the, for the Ukrainians. Why I bring this up is that Kharkiv is, of course, borders on uh, borders on Russia, and a lot of the places that Ukrainians are taking are well within uh, are well within artillery range for Russian assets. Should they be positioned on Russia's side of the border with Kharkiv now? I bring this up because on a daily basis in neighbouring Sumy and Chernihiv blasts, there are daily IDF attacks from Russia into Ukraine. These are mortars, rockets, artillery, odd airstrikes. It could be a case where the Ukrainians may very well advance forward. However, the Russians could uh, conduct a sort of a, a snap ambush and have a tactical success in pushing a lot of assets into those regions on the Russian side and just fire in during during the winter, uh, creating a lot more Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian casualties. Although of uh, of greater significance, though, as Alex you alluded to before, with regards to strateg- uh, the strategic side of things, where we could see a decisive battle in terms of uh, at the strategic level, is with uh, you know outside of outside of Russia, we've had the Nord Stream One pipeline completely shut down. When that happened, the Russia, uh, Gazprom said it would still supply Europe with natural gas via the transmission lines that go through Ukraine. Kharkiv Oblast, Shumi Oblast, and Chernihiv Oblast are major points of entry for those trans uh, for those transmission lines. So what we may see is the Russians uh, in the fight in any sort of fighting that that, that, that continues is all of a sudden a lot more natural gas infrastructure starts to get damaged and it's put and it's uh, put down to uh, collateral damage experience during fighting so there's at the tactical level it could be just there's there's elements where it could be decisive for the ukrainians should they be able to hold the territory through winter or it could be decisive should the russians be able to conduct their own sort of little sort of snap ambush as a reaction at the strategic level there's potential for decisive battle with regards to targeting natural gas infrastructure and cutting off Europe completely for the entire winter. Yeah, I agree. I think the longer term side of it is, as you've both sort of hinted at, is, is definitely more important than just one decisive action. I think in the in the main podcast a few days back, we used Armenia and Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh as an example. And that battle, that conflict was always much shorter. And I do think sort of these uh, almost political victories, so the siege of the city of Shusha, for example, had massive politi- uh, political sim- symbology, whereas in Ukraine, I do think it's much more about uh, about grinding and about uh, about an, a military defeat rather than a political defeat. Although, with that said, I do think if Ukraine, if this uh, ongoing successes from the Ukrainians in the Kharkiv region can be can be coupled with political success, such as a collapse within the Russian political system or complete um, lack of will to will, will to fight from Russian political figures who are pushing the war on at the moment. 
then yes, it could be decisive. But without that, I, I don't think the military victory alone at the time of speaking can be uh, termed as decisive alone. It needs, a, it needs that political element too. So at the start of this podcast, then I feel, uh, we mentioned that decisive battle is still a concept that isn't agreed, on, agreed upon by historians or even modern military commanders. And we have not really expanded on that at all in that we seem to have uh, come to the conclusion that they are both possible and not possible in the modern era. However, within that, we have been speaking about, for example, how the conflict in Ukraine is perhaps more attritional and a decisive battle or decisive moment may in fact be more political than it is military. And then we also use examples such as the uh, uh, 2003 war in Iraq, the Gulf War as well, as well as the uh, the Azerbaijani seizure of Shusha during the Nagorno-Karabakh war as examples when, yes, there was elements of decisive battle in the modern era. So if you have an opinion on anything we've spoken about today, then please feel free to join our Discord. Also, if you want further analysis, particularly on events taking place in Ukraine at the moment, subscribe to our YouTube channel for more video content. Thanks very much for listening.